0: I would like to begin this evening's reflection with a very, very personal story. When I was a fairly young child, I was about six, I uh, seemed to be living a very happy life, idyllic in some ways, youngest of three boys. And and one day, my uh, mother left, and she didn't return to raise me. I visited her sometimes. So after that, um, I was raised by my dad and then I had a stepmom. And I would get in these bad moods because I lost my mommy. I wasn't very happy. So I'd get in funks. Remember those? So my dad had a special chair for me, it was called the funk chair, it was a black leather chair in the corner of the room where you watch TV. So I'd have to go to my funk chair, he'd send me to my funk chair, uh, until I could come out and be in a better mood and not be so disruptive to the harmony of the family. So this was clearly not a very good situation, right? Fortunately, that's why I learned the seeds of meditation, because I'd go in my funk chair, and I'd sit there, and I'd brood. And then after a little while, I wouldn't brood anymore, and I'd start to find a calm place inside. And then when I was ready, I'd come out. And my father did that treatment with me because he knew it was effective. So, why do I tell this story? It reflects the path of the, the Buddhist teachings in a number of ways. And it taught me, fundamentally, an inner resource that I didn't know I had. I didn't know I had the capacity to be still. I didn't know that I had an inner resource in my mind and my heart that could be separate from all the turmoil of a world that wasn't cooperating with me on the outside as a kid. In another way, this mirrors what the Buddha's teachings are a lot about. He was said to be the master of turning a bad situation into a good situation. In a certain way, our practice, we often come to practice because we're moved by some form of disease. of suffering, whether it be something traumatic in our lives, so as it was for me. And that wasn't so bad. I'm sure many people here have stories that are more dramatic than mine, right? But we all have no one escapes childhood without a wound, right? So suffering often is the gateway into a path that teaches us that we have inner resources we didn't know we had. And the Buddha's path is to learn to touch those resources and cultivate them so that we can actually touch a very deep inner flowering from the place where there was suffering. So it can be from something that happened to us that's traumatic. It can just be from life cycles, aging, sickness, just the inevitable, even if we have a great life, great family life, great work life, great relationship life, can just be the vicissitudes of life itself that show us what suffering is. And so it can be a powerful gateway into a transformative energy. So I'll be reflecting on this piece throughout. We all are. We're talking about the path. But there's another way this was powerful for me, and that is, in a very simple way, and this is how I'll be. Uh, reflecting this evening and then the next talk as well is um, the the fact that I did a little work on myself internally. I took care of myself a bit. wasn't under the chosen conditions, but I learned to take care of myself, didn't I? And That actually had an impact on me that was healthy. Uh, It actually created some empathy for my father as well when I could come out more clear and realize he didn't ask for this either. And my mother didn't ask for it to be in a situation where, you know, it was in the 60s. Everybody was doing that, too. Uh, (laughs) But actually, through caring for myself and through coming out and being in a better place, I created more harmony in the environment around me as well. So what I'll be reflecting, and so there was a, a kind of caring for the environment as well, for others, through caring for myself. What I'll be reflecting on um, this evening and then also uh, the next time I give a talk is uh, a, a sutta, a classical teaching of the Buddhas, that I think quite wonderfully captures the sense of learning to care for ourselves, walking the path to do that, and then also the, the sense of our relational life that is not only internal but external, so caring for others as well. So, I want to uh, read this sutta to you, and I'll pose a question when I'm partway through. So, this is called the Setika Sutta, and it's the bamboo acrobat. I don't know why we're so into acrobats these days. <laughs> Larry, are you going to? Okay. <laughs> I don't quite know what a bamboo acrobat is, but. I think, it, actually, it, you'll find out when I read the story. <laughs> so once about a time, monks, a bamboo acrobat, and the Buddha is telling this story, a bamboo acrobat, setting himself upon his pole, addressed his assistant, Medakalika. Kalika. We'll just call her Meda. Come you, my dear Medakalika, Kalika, and climbing up the bamboo pool, stand on my shoulders. OK, master. And just know this is couched in very ancient patriarchal language in a certain way. But just think of it as somebody who's in a, a role of a leader and then an assistant. And we often in our lives have both roles, actually. Okay? We play both roles. Come you, my dear Maida, and climbing up the bamboo pole, stand upon my shoulders. Okay, master, the assistant Maida replied to the bamboo acrobat. And climbing up the bamboo pole, she stood on the master's shoulders. So then the bamboo acrobat said to his assistant Mehta, You look after me, my dear Meida, and I'll look after you. Thus, with our looking after one another, guarding one another, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down the pole. Okay? This being said, the assistant Meta said to the bamboo acrobat, this will not do at all. Master, you look after yourself, and I will look after myself. Thus, with each of us looking after ourselves, guarding ourselves, we'll show off our craft, receive some payment, and safely climb down from the bamboo pole. That's the right way to do it. So we can see, this is a, in one way, this is a, an act where two people are engaged in an activity that they want to complete successfully. It's very simple, right? In another way, this, is, this involves a social contract that we have in our families, in our work. Perhaps in a much wider sense, there's a quality that we take care of our environment, that we take care of bigger circles of life. Okay, and that maybe they take care of us. So, in this immediate situation, who was right? And in terms of our actual path, which is a more appropriate response? Prioritizing taking care of ourselves? Or if we're coordinated with somebody else, uh, taking care of others? How many people? We're not supposed to, it's not supposed to be like a very interactive situation here. So, maybe just raise a finger. So how many people think you should take care of yourself if that that's the right way to do it? I can't see, actually. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and how many say uh, taking care of others is the way to do it, to prioritize that? Okay. And there's also a C, none of the above. How many people say C, none of the above? D, both. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Just like so for some reason, the Buddha was nearby. And don't ask me why the Buddha hung out near where bamboo acrobats were performing, but I guess he did in this case. So they went to Medha and the master went to the Buddha to get the right to ask the question, who's right? Just like the assistant Maeda said to her master, and this was the Buddha's response, I will look after myself. So should you monks or practitioners, practice the establishment of mindfulness. You should also practice the establishment of mindfulness. I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after other others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others? by looking after oneself, by practicing mindfulness, by developing it, by doing it a lot. And how does one look after oneself by looking after others, by patience, by non-harming, by loving kindness, by caring for others. And other translations I read included sympathy, okay? Thus, looking after oneself, one looks after others. In looking after others, one looks after oneself. So in one way, as I mentioned, this is is a statement of being in relationship and you can interpret it on a number of different levels, can't we? So again, I'd like this evening, I'll reflect on the first part. And actually, uh, there's a few themes in this. And one is caring for self, right? One is caring for other. That's the ba- basic two themes. And then how they interact. So just in general, this, is, this sutta to me is, in terms of working with relationship, practice as relationship, I think it's, it captures a quality of wholeness equality, as Doug was speaking, that relationship is what we're in relationship each moment with everything, whether it's (coughs) internal or whether it's with others. So in the Buddhist teaching, there's two distinct strains that we can embrace as part of our practice. And one is the strain of a radical kind of independence. I'll explain that a little bit more. And another is a strain of a very profound sense of interdependence, interconnection. And this to, this sutta, to me, speaks to both of these realities and how they interact. So the sense of independence. Well, when we come to practice, and we practice, it's, it's very much an internal experience, isn't it? And we're put back on our own experience moment by moment, again and again and again. And we're asked to take responsibility for it. This is very much in line with how the Buddha extolled us to practice. His last words when he, before he passed away were, uh, all, con- thi- all conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your freedom with diligence. So he said it's up to you. He said, be a light unto yourself. There's another teaching which we to me it's one of the reasons I came to this tradition and stayed with it, really. In the column, it's called the Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha is. The Buddha is traveling through different towns and giving teachings, and he goes to one town where people have received a lot of different spiritual teachers, and they kind of have a, they have a good BS meter. And so uh, Buddha comes in and they say to him, well, well, why should we listen to you? And he says, good question. Why should we practice what you teach? He said, don't practice what I say because I said it. Right? Someone in this authority. Don't go on tradition. Don't go by reputation. Don't go by a friend telling you it's great. Don't go by any of these externals. Don't let those, that be the final say. Take the teachings and test them. You have to test them deeply in your life. And if you find that they're no good, then discard them and move on. I'm paraphrasing, of course. <laughs> but if you find that they're valuable and relevant, then treat them like gold. Treat them as precious jewels. So that's, again, putting the responsibility very much on ourselves, isn't it? That it's our life. That it's our responsibility of how we meet the moment. And so it's a journey. And the... The whole journey is framed in a way of moving from suffering or discomfort or ignorance, just not seeing clearly, uh, to and especially the main framework is suffering to freedom, from constriction to ease, from reactivity to the potential for an inner response based on space and clarity rather than unseen habit energy. And this is the movement that we embrace in practice. We move in a way from what Doug was pointing to last night, seeing through the lens of a clouded, a clouded mind and heart, a mind that is often caught up in seeing the way they should things should be, or the way they were, instead of seeing how things are. So our practice is a practice of self-discovery. So self-caring, and this is what we'll be exploring tonight, is this quality of how do we for ourselves, how do we care for ourselves in the deepest sense through our practice? How do we walk the Buddha's path? How do we embrace fully this independence, this inner spirit, this inner freedom that in a way we all come to this for, don't we? So we start, and for me, it's wonderful, and we all can tap this. We start in a way by finding out that we have little bits of resources that are natural that we didn't know we had. That's what I learned in my funk chair, which actually, after a while, didn't become a funk chair. <sighs> kind of became a little refuge, a place I could be quiet. I go there sometimes myself, actually. <laughs> now I come to places like this. <laughs> my choice. (laughs) So there's something innate in the process of being alive that is very fresh and clear in our hearts and minds. And we touch it by it breaks through in nature, it breaks through in intimacy at times. It just breaks through. Often when we're little, we're little children and we love it, it maybe especially, well, if they're ours, we have it too, but if they're just, we see some, there's some innocence that's mirrored back to us and it's not just the freshness of the life, but it actually mirrors back a quality of our own hearts and minds that is pristine, that isn't bound up in conflictual energy. It's a very, very fresh mind. And so this mind that's very present and very judge, non-judgmental, just by its nature, we touch it in ways. And then the Buddha said that we can. it's essential that we take this quality of a mind that is present and non-judgmental and we cultivate it, that it has tremendous power in our life. And so the way I just talked, a mind that can be present without pushing and pulling, without Judging, pushing, pulling, wanting, not wanting, is mindfulness. That's one of the definitions. So just filling out some of the aspects of of our path, the practice, it's that quality that actually, when we drop into it at any time, relationally, internally, in relation to others, it protects us. Why does it protect us? Why does mindfulness protect us? Well, Shantideva, a great Indian um, teacher, uh, has a great analogy. He says, I'll ask you another question. (laughs) Uh, If you want to protect your feet, bare feet, Walking along the Earth, ancient times, right? Gravel roads. What's, there are two ways to do it. One, you can cover the whole Earth in leather, and then you'll have a nice smooth ride, right? <laughs> and what's the other way? <laughs> strap some leather to the soles of your feet. Hopefully get it stitched up nicely uh, before you strap it to your feet and then walk the earth with shoes on, or moccasins. Right? So what does this have to do with this? Well, What we do, and Doug spoke to it last night, is that we impose our view on the world the way it should, it should be smooth. We should be able to walk on it with our bare feet and not get our toes stubbed, our foot pricked. But that's not the way the world is. That's not the way relationships are objects don't they go their own way they have their own they have their own integrity of of what they are and how they move and so mindfulness is saying that we work with our own mind and heart so the analogy is for our heart our mind that mindfulness protects it gives us the ability no matter what touches us from the inside or outside to actually have a space of clarity and the trainings of mindfulness, and we're working with them, they're usually done, they're, there's what are called four foundations. And so we've been training in the foundations that build, that build a, a steady place of rest that's grounded with breath and body. So the first foundation is working with our breath and our body. Okay, so it's the tactile experience, very simple. And then as our practice expands, we begin to open and we can include more and more, which we've done today as the instructions open, to include more and more of our, of our experience. So the next foundation, and they all work together, is the quality of pleasure or discomfort that we have. Have you noticed when you pay attention, even do a breath, sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't, sometimes it's comfortable, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's just neutral. but. That this field of awareness, this place of experience is actually a place we can bring clear present moment awareness to. And that it can start to build our mindfulness. So too we can do this with thoughts, with images, with emotions, with moods. It's called the third foundation. And then in this system of practice that we're doing, where the breath it runs through it, right? So the instructions we're given today. The second mode of instruction is that the keep the breath in mind but we open. Then the last foundation is just to see the impermanent empty in the sense that there's no fixed solid center experience of things coming and going. And so when we we protect our heart and our mind by being in a relationship in a way where we don't judge these things, but actually it goes deeper when we tune into them in a way where we remember. And that's the second definition of mindfulness, (laughs) is that we remember. And that's a lot of our practice, isn't it? Because we build build a a base working with breath and body, and now we've opened it up a little bit. It's a base where we come back to when we build a momentum of practice. And we remember to come back to what we've said for ourselves. So it's both just this pristine quality of non-pushing and pulling. It's clear, present and it's the remembering to come back to what supports that and enhances that. So this is our mindfulness practice, and it protects, and we can do this in different ways. So when I'm, as I'm reflecting, I'm trying to help us along in our, in our practice. So there's different ways that we can, we can touch in with our mindfulness practice. So it, it's protective in general. Uh, it's often considered guard like a guard. It's like a sentinel, some of the old images are, where it doesn't let anything pass, that it doesn't want to let pass. And so again this is from the mind though this isn't the, this isn't the nature of experience it's actually it becomes how we're relating to our experience okay so that's a big shift as our practice opens from we will spend as much time as we want just coming back to the breath and the body using that as a stabilizing place and when it goes off to a thought we come away from it but Eventually, as practice opens and it matures, when it starts to ripen, then we no longer need to do that. And so the conflictual energy that we have in relation to our thoughts starts to change. So that we're, we're, we're protecting ourselves from having a reaction that's bound up in reaction. <laughs> That's bound up in a quality of wanting to get rid of something, or if we like it, wanting it. Right? So we can start to see these energies in a different way. Okay? So we begin to open our field. So when this when we when we work with mindfulness, then what slowly happens is that the mind becomes steadier. So in a sort of spectrum of practice, mindfulness. Uh, supports when it, when it becomes more continuous, then it, it leads into what's called shamatha. And Larry's been talking, we've been talking about this basic practice of shamata, which is calming and steadying the heart and the mind, and then using that to see clearly. So shamata is that feature of experience where our minds settle, starts to settle. We come back enough. We return to a non-reactive mind that sees clearly enough. And then momentum starts to build. And then when that, start, then that ripens and we're open to life, then we start to see in a way that's called vipassana, which is this clear seeing. And we see into the nature of experience where our fundamental relationship changes. And there's moments of freedom. And I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> so there's a couple kinds. And this is, this is a way that I like to I work with it in my own experience. And I, um, I think it's a helpful way to present it. Shamatha can be seen as as one-pointed concentration. And I think it's important because it because it it'll relate to how we relate to our practice, how we engage it with effort. So one is, let's say we're working with the breath, and Larry's been given or we've been given a field. The way we're all teaching is is kind of embodying a bigger sense, like a whole body, right? So we do that, but. We work in a way where the mind steadies, and it can be on an object, it can be a lot of people are used to watching their breath here or here, right, one area, it can be in an object in an area, uh, and then we get a certain result of that. It can also be the quality of attention that becomes steady, and this is more if we're doing more whole body breathing, it becomes steady, but we're not just attending specifically to one object in one area. Okay. And the feature of shamatha of is that it gives us a place of refuge. It gives us a break, doesn't it? So I was teaching recently um, somewhere else in, uh, in New York State, and I was walking through the woods, and I saw a, uh, a groundhog, and it popped its head out of the ground, and it came out, and it saw me. And immediately, it's, I, it must have seen me as predator. So whoosh, it was back in its hole immediately. And so I thought, oh, that's like shamatha. <laughs> when, <laughs> when we come out, and we open it up and it's a little scary, <laughs> we go back in our hole. Now, it's actually good that we learn shamatha in this way. Why? Because normally we go in our hole when we feel scared in the environment, but what's our hole? Well, it might be food. Right? We feel uncomfortable, so we go to food, and then our belly gets bigger, or we go, uh, we go, and we rack up a little more credit card bill because it feels good to buy something. Uh, I do that sometimes. I'll admit it. Right? And these are ways that we escape from something that we think is frightening us. We go into a hole, but it has consequences. And so, in Shamatha, we're learning in a very practical way. We're learning how to have a safe refuge. And in a certain way, that's what I learned when I was a little kid a little bit, right? How to go into a place where I wasn't acting out and I wasn't causing harmful consequences for myself or others and where we're getting some real clear renewal. But that's limited, isn't it? So let's say, that, let's say the groundhog, I'm speculating now, he's hungry and I'm coming to feed him. And he's afraid because he sees me as a predator, but it's the delusion. And he runs in his hole and I, don't, I, I can't feed him. Okay? He misses out on a good meal because of his fear, because he goes in. And so if his, if his, if his awareness was more open and steady, and that's what happens in Vipassana, that's what's happened when our awareness is steady, but we open it up, right? so in a moving field, then we can actually stay and see. We can hang out with certain things that aren't so easy to be with, and we can see, oh, is that a predator or is that a friend? We can see clearly and then we can move from that place of clarity. So that's the limitation of, of shamatha, its strength of just going back to an object. And then vipassana, when we open into vipassana then, well, in one way it's, and you you may have experienced this, probably have in different ways, we just start to see the ephemeral nature of change of things. And it loosens our, it just loosens our experience in relation to things. And we, there's two ways of seeing Vipassana. One is like you see into the nature of experience because the mind is steadier and it can look into things, but also you see into the nature of the mind and the heart itself that's free, often going through impermanence. It's very interesting. So I had one kind of just normal experience that I just was remembering today when I was walking of some years ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago or so, I was on a long retreat here. And I just, was, I just remember sitting out on the bench out there and. My mind was kind of quiet and open, and a car passed, and my mind just heard the sound. And then as the sound ended, just, I just, my mind just stayed with it. And then as the sound ended, my mind just, got, just opened up a bit, just got very quiet and open. It's like, oh, just seeing into, when the conditions are right, the ephemeral nature of experience opens us into a fundamental nature, a depth in our hearts and minds. So shamatha, vipassana, is this process of calming and steadying, and then seeing into. So, how do we, um, how do we affect this? How do we work with this? What are some good attitudes to work with this um, process in with the stuff of our life? It's nice in theory, isn't it? <laughs> and we have sweet moments, but it's kind of tough being on retreat, isn't it? We've got a lot of stories that are sticky going on, don't we? You've got your own versions of me, right? Maybe you don't, but we do. We have our relational places that are hard. And in the teaching, in the sutta, it says that we, uh, we take care of ourselves by practicing mindfulness and doing it a lot, right? So that means we have to come back a lot. We have to come back to the present a lot, doesn't it? So that's actually that's actually one level. That's one that's one aspect of practice. But how do we come back? Do we come back with a tight mind or a mind that's balanced? This is when we when our practice starts to move from one where we're trying to actually, as our practice opens too. We're trying to get rid of certain objects, like I don't want that thought so I can be with the breath, to a wider sense of mindfulness where, okay, that thought can be there. How am I relating to it? What's the quality of energy that's meeting the moment? And it could be the sa- it's the same thing with the breath. And so we start to look at the nature of how our mind is in relationship to experience rather than actually what we're attending to. And there's a wonderful analogy many of you have probably heard, and it's, you can hear it a 1,000 times. It's one of my favorite analogies in the teachings in terms of effort is someone um, came to the Buddha who was a monk, and he, he was really sort of over-efforting, and uh, he wanted to quit. You know the feeling sometimes? <laughs> he, just, he just wanted to go. You know He actually wanted to quit being a monk. He said, I can't do this. Uh, I'm trying, but nothing's happening, and so the Buddha said to you, what were you before? You were a monk, and he said, oh, I was a a Vinai player, musician, and so he said, well, when you tried to play your instrument, if you plucked or they, how do they do, What does a Vinai work? Lute. Do you use a a bow or do you use fingers? It was an old, time, long time ago. They probably didn't have as many bows. Okay, good. Uh, so, how do you how do you, how do you pluck the strings? He said, "How do you if you pluck the strings, and they're too tight, what happens?" He said, "Oh, how can you know? Can you make nice sound?" He said, "No. If they're really too tight, they'll snap. And otherwise, they'll just have this bad sound." He said, "What happens if the strings are too loose?" He Said, "Oh, just twangy noise." And he said, just so. You need to practice the strings of your mind, the quality of your effort of how you're meeting the moment with an energy that is neither too tight nor too loose. Then your mind will make beautiful music. Your practice will make music. And we learn through seeing that which is not right? That sweet spot of practice. We see that the mind is trying too hard, is efforting too much, it's trying to get it too much, or it's trying to get rid of, right? Those are, that's over-efforting, or it's just kind of lax, and there's a daydream, and yeah, it's not bad, and so we hang out with it a little longer. We know that that remembrance is there, but well, in a little while, we'll do that. So we actually, it's beautiful because our practice, it's like a Something that corrects itself automatically, like a Weeble, it wobbles, but if you don't mess with it, it comes back. So we see, and this is, it actually doesn't come back unless it's not a perfect analogy. Uh, but we, we actually, it corre- there's a self-corrective when we see into, we see into that which is imbalanced. Okay? But then you, have, you can't really try to see that very hard either, can you? If you try to see that very hard, then what happens? You're doing it again. <laughs> Each, oh no, my mind's over efforting. Let me see that. And so often in practice with this, there's a quality not only of remembrance, but of recognition. And to me, this is a very sweet energy in practice to, to really work with. The quality of recognition that awareness is arising with an object, whether it's, an, whether it's, whether it's the way we want the mind to be or not. So if the mind is striving tight, if it's angry, if it's this or that, we recognize that there's awareness right there. And that's a natural reflex. So we remember and we also recognize. We recognize that that little resource of waking up that we all have is actually, it's like it's trying to break through in a way. It's right here. But we're so busy with our agenda of practice often that we don't recognize it. So another attitude in the cultivation of practice, the wise effort, um, is is one where we really do the opposite of efforting, and we just we just relax into a nature of awareness that's present, that's prior to our thinking. And this is from Gendun Rinpoche. Uh, he says, "Don't search any further." Looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at front at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo. Nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. So just embracing, even as we listen to these words just embracing this quality of awareness. Don't search any further looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth, nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want and nothing missing. Marvelous, everything happens by itself. So there's this quality of recognition there's a quality in a way that as our practice matures and awareness starts to spontaneously, when shamatha and Vipassana start to become more balanced, the mind's more steady and we start to see more clearly into experience. Then the moments where the mind's nature is fundamentally balanced and seeing clearly, into experience, resting in its own nature, this happens more and more. And then we start to actually realize that this inner sense, this inner resource of caring for ourselves, in the deep sense that the Buddha was talking about, walking the path, working with the quality of our attention, etc., that it starts to unfold all on its own. There's an image of a um, uh, a thief, or we all kind of. Well, maybe you're not like a thief. But I know in my practice, I've been very aggressive. I wanted to go out and get, get my enlightenment or something. <laughs> I wasn't trying to steal it from anyone. <laughs> uh, but there's a story of a thief and his family that go out and they work so hard to thieve and to get money. And they, they're not making it too well. And the whole time, they don't know. But in the back of their yard, there's a buried treasure. It's right there, all that effort, if they just put it in the right place. And our practice is learning to put it in the right place. And where is that place? It's right here. It's right in the very midst of this moment, of this experience, this relational moment with whatever is arising. And when this balanced mind starts to ripen, then we start to be able to work with the tough stuff a little more with an attitude and an actual experience that is more balanced. So one attitude in practice that I uh, think is very powerful is it's called uh, uh, it's from an, Im- an image that I think Shinryu Suzuki, the great Zen Master, first coined it or brought it to this country. It's like, practice with a, your mind when you want it to settle, start to see clearly. Uh, like it's a, in a big pasture. So rather than you can guard the mind in a way that's very rigid and tight, and then it's very hard to keep the energies balanced. Uh, some of us, that works very well. It never did for me. When I practiced in Asian, people said, watch your breath here, just here. I, my whole body would get tense for long periods of time. Sometimes I have really nice experiences, but the effort, it was very, I like, guarded, be there, don't have bad, don't, right? Don't wander. And how about a big pasture mind? Now, what's, how's a big pasture? That means that we're not so much struggling with our mind to be exactly the way that we think it should be. And so it can move around a little more. We're a little bit, our effort's not too tight. We don't wanna make it too loose either, but it's a bigger space. We give ourselves a little more space to be as we are. But there's also, it's a pasture, but it has a boundary. So our mindfulness is a little wider. And that's what happens as we open the practice. It's a little more expensive. It's a little more free to see movement. And if it's really a big pasture, the way that helps the mind settle is that if there's enough room, the cows will kind of settle down and chomp, won't they? If there's enough food there, and where do we get sustenance but the present moment? So there is if we meet it properly, because it's just here. So I had a funny story uh, for me a few days ago, before I came here, uh, where I woke up when we live, myself and uh, my partner Malika, who's, I shouldn't say it, but she's on retreat here, uh, hiding. <laughs> um, or she's quiet. Uh, we live in the, near Newburyport, Massachusetts, so near the coast. And we have we have a bit of land, and uh, there's but we just have a big we have a yard in the front and lots of trees, and we hear we see animals coming through, uh, we see turkeys, wild turkeys, and we have a lot of we have a couple cats, and we have you know there's a lot of there's a lot of life, tons of you know gray squirrels and all this kind of stuff, um, but that's usually what we see. We see a deer every once in a while, et cetera, Coyotes, okay. Uh, but one morning last week, before I came, I I came up and I, I in the morning I looked out front. And sitting right out in there, we have bird feeders right out in front. It was a whole bunch of cows. <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> what had these cows done? <laughs> well, there's a farm we live on a reservoir that's across the reservoir. They ne- and they must have busted out. They had a big pasture, but they had giant pasture mind. They wanted, <laughs> they wanted out, and somehow they came across a, not a very big bridge. And they made it all the way around and chewed up our lawn pretty good, too. But anyways, and when I came out to, to see them, like I try to get close to them, they sprinted off <laughs> down the front yard and into the woods as fast as possible. And I'm thinking, it's just like thoughts. They get outside the corral of mindfulness, right? Because something's got to be greener, right? Something's got to be better than this. And then they run amok. Right, and then you go after. Them. You say, "Come on back," and they're like, "No, this is way better." <laughs> so that's what we do. <laughs> and then I talked to the guy who runs the farm. I called him up and I said, "Listen, uh, I saw your cows," and he said, "Did you try to? Did you see them? Did you try to get them?" He said, yeah. "I said, yeah," and they ran right off. And he goes, "Oh." So, and that's what they do. I know. If you try, if they're free and they and you try to corral, and then they run off. Now, where's the wisdom in this? Well, those cows were very happy and free, weren't they? Being outside of their corral. Well, what's gonna happen when it gets dark? Or there's a thunderstorm? Or they get hungry and they're in the woods and they're being attacked by ticks and coyotes are howling and they had a big pasture they could be in. (laughs) They won't know how to get back. Their practice is much harder than ours. We just wake up and we're back. So that's the, that's the mind that gets out of big pasture. It's not satisfied. So please practice with big pasture mind. <laughs> I don't want to see you suffering unnecessarily. <laughs> OK. So when we have a big pasture, um, then the parts of ourselves that pull us and run us this way and that very strongly, they have a little more room to move. Now, in the sutta, it says, uh, that when we care for ourselves, then we do it with mindfulness. And when we care for others, we do with patience, with kindness, with loving kindness, um, sympathy, care. Right. But when we practice, it often feels like there's the splits off part of ourselves are other, doesn't it? In relationship, it feels like they're other. So for me, the sutta is actually saying, because it's a sutta on both independence but also interdependence, that it works both ways, that in ourselves is the other. It's like in the yin-yang symbol. You see that there's the, like it's the masculine and the feminine. I think it's the light and the dark. And all, But inside of one is the other. So inside ourself is this sense of other. And we really experience that, don't we? So when our mind is balanced and it's open and it's big, then we can start to actually see into these experiences which are split off, which are other. and We can try to cultivate patience and loving kindness, sympathy, care, but when we're really attentive and we really see when we're not kind or not patient, then what happens? when our when the when when we're actually seeing clearly into these heart states, these mind states, then there is a quality of care and gentleness. And often our breath, as we open the practice, can be that gateway in. So Thich Nhat Han, in using anger as an example, he says the Buddhist attitude, so this is the other in our big pasture mind. The Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. In other words, we breathe and hold our anger, our fear, our loneliness. All of the energies that are split off in us are the grass's greener mind outside. We hold those all with a mind that is big, that is spacious, that is open, that is willing to be in a non-pull, push-and-pull relationship. And The breath gives us a a way to stabilize our awareness. It's like a good friend, isn't it, or riding her, or the body. It gives us something where we can have, be in a more friendly relationship with the experience. And when we do this over time, then shamatha vipassana starts to happen. And we actually see into things in a way that transforms our relationship to them, not pushing and pulling, but also actually transforms. Sometimes they disappear. Sometimes we see thoughts and they're gone that were really bothering us. Sometimes, that's so we see impermanence, sometimes we see into and then where there was constriction and stuckness, something else reveals itself, something changes. And This is really at the heart of our practice. Larry has a wonderful quote. I hope I can, he, he wrote a poem once, right, Larry? Okay, he's in deep, he's in deep samadhi. I'm using your material. Okay. (laughs) So he says, (laughs) uh uh-oh, I don't know if I can remember it. Suffering. Oh, yes. (laughs) Where, Where can peace be found? Where can peace be found? In the same place as sorrow. How convenient. How convenient. So this is, this is from... Is it okay that I'm going over a little bit? I won't be too much longer. I want to... Okay, good. Is it okay, Larry? <laughs> 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 he's my guru. No. He's my <laughs> Actually, uh, Larry, Larry trained me to teach about starting about... How many? Ten years ago, maybe? Eight or ten years ago. And, he, and he's not done yet. You know why? Because he says if I, I'm gonna, he says if I want to do my postdoc, I can't use any notes. <laughs> and these guys are these guys are deep men of Zen. <laughs> but uh, I still have my little quotes here. It's okay. I'm fine with my PhD. He says, uh, go to the pine, and this is from Basho. And this is about our practice. This is the essence of our practice. This is the essence in a way of the attitude that we bring into practice, which is to, when we care for ourselves and we're willing in this path of practice that the Buddha, that we're on right now, then we learn to study and look into ourselves. We learn to use our minds and hearts as we would trying to learn an art learn something on the outside. Our inner world and our relational world moment by moment becomes our art. So he says, go to the pine if you want to learn about the pine or to the bamboo if you want to learn about the bamboo. In doing so, you must leave your preoccupation with yourself. Otherwise, you impose yourself on the object and do not learn. Your poetry issues of its own accord when you and the object have become one. When you have plunged deep enough into the object to see something like a hidden glimmering there. Your poetry issues of its own accord when you and the object have become one. When you have plunged deep enough into the object to see something like a hidden glimmering there. So when we see, and we have to, it's beautiful because we're self-conscious. We're trying. To use our thought, right? We're trying to use the sense of the separate analyzing self to go into the immediacy of the moment. It doesn't work. We have to lose it. We have to let the power of these factors, these causes and conditions of clear seeing, we have to let them by being just present again and again. We have to let them take over. And then we can meet those split off parts of ourself. We take care of them, but we do more than that we see into them in a way that they actually, there's a glimmering there. There's some energy that comes right from the heart of that which was constricted. and Our suffering directly becomes a gateway, as Larry pointed out in his poem, becomes a direct gateway into freedom. I traveled a thousand miles or so a couple of years ago to take a teaching, a mind training teaching, which said, basically the essence of it was, look directly into that which binds you, your anger, your fear, your loneliness, and rest in natural awareness. Look into it and rest at the same time. So when we do that, our life becomes our practice. There's absolutely no separation. And then when that glimmering, or that's, that's a beautiful analogy, then what happens? Then the path of the self becomes of working with the self, of caring for the self, the moments. Then we actually realize there's nobody home in quite the way we thought there was. In the constriction, there's, well, the Buddha talks of it as emptiness. Song Sanim, actually one of Larry's teachers, uh, he was doing a, a radio interview, and uh, at the end of the interview, I guess he had a thick Korean accent. Um, but at the end of the interview, the guy said, "Oh, that's great, uh, great!" And he had this very famous uh, "don't know mind," right? The mind that is actually it has that intimacy, and it doesn't need to know. <laughs> it's just that it just has that intimacy with life. And at the end of the interview, he said the the, the radio uh, programmer said to him, "Well, the interviewer said." Uh, Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Sang Sanin. But uh, just tell me, what is this donut mind you're talking about? (laughs) And he said, ah, very good. Mind, empty inside. Very good. (laughs) Okay, let's sit for a minute. (laughs) If you want to learn the depths of the moment, you must leave your preoccupation with yourself. When you and the object have become one, there's something like a hidden glimmering there, here. So thank you. And. Time for walking.